Hi everyone, welcome to Morning Matcha. So excited to share with you today's guest, Dr. Deepika Chopra, who is the optimism doctor and happiness researcher and the founder of Things Are Looking Up. Hi. Hi. Thanks for joining me today. I'm so excited to be here and finally get to do this. I know. We've just kind of known. I mean, I remember talking to you, I think, when I was pregnant. Yeah. And then some crazy thing happened to you then, too. I don't remember what oh, happened. Like I do. Your I fell life. off a bike oh, yeah. and I broke my jaw. <laughs> I remember we were going to yes. like chat more yes. and kind of follow up with each other and stuff. But then I had a baby. You got her. Yeah. And then... I was riding on this idyllic street in the Hamptons after speaking on a panel with my husband. It was our first time away from JAG. Wow. And I just like my my tire got caught on a pothole and I... <laughs> I fell face forward over the handlebars into the asphalt and broke my jaw. And this like lovely, idyllic, beautiful Hamptons trip for two days got Whoa. turned into this like. Did you end up like staying there? Or what happened? Oh, my gosh. It was like it's so funny how how resilient we are because there's like it was such a it was so visceral and surreal to me. But I can I can't even like remember the like details now. But um, it was our last night. And we had to get back to the city at like, we'd had to like leave at 5 a.m. the next day to drive back to the city because we had an early morning mm -hmm. flight. And I just remember like how excited I was to get back to Jag. And yeah. The sun. And we were riding these bikes in the evening and it was literally right before it happened. I like sort of shouted, my husband was riding a little bit ahead of me. And I was like, babe, this is the most incredible moment. Just like look around. <laughs> we're on this like, street called Lily Pond Lane. It's like beautiful. Mm -hmm. We had just had this like evening walk and I was like, and I'm just so excited. And then like, right when I said that my, <laughs> my tire like got caught in the pothole and, um, it turned, um, it turned like, Into like a horror, horror movie yeah. very quickly. Um, Were you like bleeding? Everywhere? Yes. Oh no. And I had never broken anything before my husband. I remember him screaming. Like he kind of just turned around turned weird this like car was driving by and stopped huh? and was like do you guys need help and my husband was just sort of like yes so we like jumped in this random stranger's car Whoa. who we who he said he would take us to the hospital and there's only one hospital in the Hamptons and there's a lot of traffic because it was a weekend in the summer and one road to get there and all of a sudden he turns into this driveway and he's like taking us to his home and there's like shovels everywhere. Whoa. I'm not even kidding. And I was like, then I got mad, like in the middle of it. I was like, why did we get into a random person's car? What are we doing? Yeah. So then we get out of the car. How did like you hobbling. get like, did you run away from him? Yeah. Literally, my husband was like, um, we don't want to go here. Like we're leaving. We, he pulls into his driveway. It's like this long driveway. <gasps> I like, just remember there were shovels everywhere like that this weird house so and weird. we jump out of the car and I'm, I'm literally like hobbling <laughs> cause, and I have blood everywhere. We go to the main highway and people probably think my husband, like, like, I don't know what they Hurt think you yeah. or whatever, but yeah. it's just like, it looks, it must've just looked crazy. Yeah. And anyway, we, we call our host who we were staying with. He brings our rental car. We get in the rental car. We're driving to this hospital that is taking forever and I'm like starting to feel faint because I'm, I see the blood Losing now. My husband said, do not look in the mirror. Huh. I was like, okay. And I'm like, babe, I think I'm feeling like lightheaded. So we did what we probably should have done from the beginning, which is we pulled over and called the ambulance and we got into the ambulance and they obviously like sirened us to the hospital much quicker. 
And my husband just said to me, like, babe, I just want you to know before you get there, like, I'm pretty sure you're going to need stitches. And like, to me, I think I told you before, I'm like pretty needle phobic Mm -hmm. and I've never had stitches as a kid. I never broke anything. I mean, I had a C-section, but I wasn't cognizant. really. I mean, I was, but I was, I had the the spinal, so Mm -hmm. I couldn't feel much. So I thought that was going to be the, the like the tip of it all. Um, but I get there and the guy, initially the nurse, he's triaging us and he sort of gives me like a wink and says, I'm going to say that like, maybe cause I was in pain. He's like, maybe there's a jaw breakage possible. So you can like get in quicker. So I was like, okay. So I looked at Alex and I said, he said something about like, I was probably like, he said something about <laughs> jaw breakage, but I think it was just to triage me. But like, little did we know we get there, they do the scans and I literally had broken my jaw. So it turned into this, like, we have to take you to like the main hospital. You need surgery right now. I called up my parents. I was crying. I was like, I just want to go home and see Jag. And I ended up like listening to my gut and my instinct. And I was like, I don't think I want to have surgery here. I want to get home. Yeah. Um, I'm very like well connected to Cedars and UCLA. Like it's where I did all my training. Um, And my parents like talked in a minute, like got me on the phone with some of their like best friends that are in the field. So I signed against like medical orders. I had to sign like this thing called an AMA Mm -hmm. and my husband and I made the drive. Um, So what they, did they stitch you up or? So they stitched me up. Uh Um, The cut was pretty, I have a little scar here. It's underneath though. They stitched me up. And to be honest, like I was so proud of myself. Like I was a rock star during the stitching. Like I just, Alex looked over and he almost fainted and he's like, he's much stronger in the like medical realm. Like I always said, like, I wish he could have had our baby. Mm-hmm. He would have been great. Yeah. I think, but now I don't know. No. Um, we think that but yeah. they really can't No. So, um, yeah, we got back and he was, he was amazing, but the doctors basically said, I don't know how long it's going to be. Wait till you get back to LA, but you can't chew. And I was like, if I would have known that I just had my last meal, Mm -hmm. um, like the day before or that day for lunch, um, I would have probably eaten something different, but, uh, Alex found me like a smoothie at like 2am in the Hamptons, which does not exist Yeah, Yeah, from like a bar. He like really (laughs) like begged someone to make it. And we got on the plane and we got back. So you got back to see it yourself. I got back here and I was so lucky. I felt like the most fortunate person in the world the specialist said I had the only type of breakage that did not require immediate surgery. Oh. I didn't have to get my like jaw wired shut, but I had to like follow the rules and I couldn't chew anything for six weeks. So I was on a liquid Whoa. soft diet for six weeks. And how old was Jag? Uh, Jag was like one. Oh he had just turned one. Yeah. So yeah, with a one-year-old dealing with all that, that's yeah. crazy. And then how interesting, like you said, finding a moment where you're so positive and so grateful for life and then things just like kind of come crashing, yeah. you know? Yeah. And yeah, I'm just True. curious, like <laughs> I want to hear your story about how did you become the optimism doctor? What kind of doctor? Yes. I'm assuming yeah, the psychiatrist. Yep. Yeah, psychologist. Yeah. Um, so... I actually uh, started off my my career in investment banking, hmm. and I lived over by where you're from. I lived by in Newport for a year. Oh wow! So I did my undergrad at UCLA, and then I graduated a little bit early. And I don't know what my rush was, but I really wanted to work. Mm-hmm. So I went and I lived out in Orange County for about a year. I did investment banking. I was a capital markets analyst for um, who? For Roth Capital. Oh okay. Do you know? No. 
they're they're um they were in the fashion island like yeah the corporate there's part. a lot of the yeah yeah bankers are there and it was great actually um i like there was a lot of challenges for me i was the only female um the youngest that was not like an assistant i was a capital markets analyst mm -hmm. and i learned so much and had to gain um a lot of my confidence like just like it was pretty brutal to be honest but looking back obviously i'm like oh there's great lessons i learned but mm -hmm. it was really tough um how so just people or so there was like within the first two weeks i was there i didn't know until i found out but there was like a poll going around of like who could sleep with me the first <gasps> and there was like money involved whoa yeah there was a lot of little things did like you that. go to hr or you yeah just they were and actually like roth is an amazing company like it wasn't like i don't know if it was a joke there was just a lot of joking it was basically like working in like a frat house mm -hmm. um i knew the like the founder of Roth, like I knew they're like great people. And actually like between my father and some of them who were my mentors there, they like actually helped me um, sort of make an impact there in a really positive way. Mm -hmm. So like they, they, the people that really mattered were like, you do not need to take this shit. Mm -hmm. Like you, and they helped me and they coached me through it. And there was only a couple bad seeds and actually they left. Yeah. They were, they were taken care of. Yeah. Um, but, but still it happened. Yeah, it happened, but it happened in other places too. It happened in like, you know, this is just something that I've always picked careers that were more, unfortunately at the time, more male dominated. Mm -hmm. um, but my dad, I always say, I think like I met my first like sort of male feminist when I was born because mm -hmm. my dad doesn't even like self-proclaim himself that way. Yeah. But the way in which he raised me was just very... And I don't really want to label it. I don't know if it's, he just raised me very much. Like he had two daughters, my sister and I, and it was very much like you guys and, and I'm Indian. So mm -hmm. a lot of my background is really like women are sort of raised to like get married. Mm -hmm. um, but he was basically like, I don't even want you to think about marriage. Like mm -hmm. to him, it was almost like me thinking about it. It was like the opposite. Mm -hmm. Like you, I really want you to have a career. I want you to stand on your own. Like when yeah. I was in college and, and after college and, you know, in my twenties, he was like, I don't want you to ever accept a drink from someone. Like, mm -hmm. I don't want you to feel like you owe anyone anything. You always buy your own drinks. You, you know, have your own career. You stand on your own two feet. Um, education is power. That's also a very Indian thing, but yeah, it my really dad's resonated. very similar. Yeah. yeah, it really resonated with me, and so I, I really like. I went further and wanted to have like a graduate mm -hmm. degree. Um, it wasn't necessarily in what I think anyone thought I would get it in. Um, so with the investment banking piece, I actually had an amazing time there. It wasn't probably perfect for me. Um. And you learned that probably quickly. Yeah. Like, I don't think raising capital for companies was necessarily my calling. I've always been someone that was like, I'm definitely a highly sensitive person. And even as a kid, um, you know, I, I recently found like a diary I used to keep when I was like seven or eight. And like, I had written like love poems Aww. and like just reading them. I was like, wow, like, I don't even know why or where I was thinking about some of the stuff I was thinking about, like. I now Jags too. I can't imagine him just five years from now, like writing, writing about love, love like romantic well. love. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know where I'm not really sure. Or like pondering these like sort of more like existential mm -hmm. ideas. And it must've probably really annoyed my family. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I was sort of always that same person, like asking kind of like why. And, um, 
So within working there, though, I, I learned very quickly that I actually loved the business side of things. I loved deal making. I probably didn't love um, just like raising capital for companies wasn't like enough for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up I, I I literally gained so much confidence in myself as a young, like 20 something year old because of the work I did there and because of um, sort of the power they empowered me, mm-hmm. like the majority of them, especially within the company. Um, and my dad, I mean, my dad literally coached me that entire year. Mm-hmm. He and I like role played. Like he would be like, if someone says this to you, you say this now practice it and mm-hmm. mean it. And like, we literally would go back and forth. Like he like helped That's me so, cool. so much. And, and so I, I think part of that, um, I gained a lot of guts and, probably to their dismay, my parents, I called them, um, on a Monday and I said, you know, you guys, I quit about an hour ago and (laughs) that's not all. I bought a ticket to Japan and it leaves in two days. (laughs) And they were like, what? And then what? And then when are you coming back? And I said, oh yeah. And the other thing is I don't have a return ticket. (laughs) Oh my goodness. And so I Japan. I had this. What year was this? This was 2000 and uh, 2005, 2006. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, I just sort of, I knew if I didn't, and for myself too, you know, at the core of it, I am a homebody. I think I am really comfortable being around a lot of people and I have a very extroverted side and, um, I thrive in that, but I'm also like super introverted and mm-hmm. I need that. Like, and so It was something that was really out of the ordinary for me. I mean, I studied abroad in Rome when I was in college and my parents had to literally like, it was my idea at first, but when the time came, I wanted to just like stay home Mm -hmm. and they had to literally like push me Mm -hmm. to get out. I didn't want to go to college far away. And so for me to be telling them like, I'm going to Japan, I don't speak the language. I have a one-way ticket. By myself. By myself. You know, it was, so I had been, I had, but it was a, good timing that you left the baking industry. Yes. No, it was time. perfect. And it sort of like was a very cliche eat, pray, love moment, but I, I was still very young and a lot of my friends hadn't graduated yet. Um, and I was sort of like, I did this thing and I put all my sort of like eggs in that basket and it wasn't, it so wasn't what I wanted. And now what do I do? And I felt kind of I also had moved out to Newport and the hours were pretty crazy. So I was a little isolated Mm -hmm. and I sort of just didn't know my place and I had no inspiration. Yeah. So I, I don't know the only inspiration I had, I had this like deep calling to go to Japan Mm -hmm. and, um, what'd you find there? Oh my gosh. So much stuff. How long did you stay? I stayed almost two months Mm -hmm. and I actually was in the countryside. So I was in a little town called Shiruishizao, which is, uh, North of Sendai in the Miyagi prefecture. So I wasn't even in Tokyo. And, um, so random. Yeah, it was so random. <laughs> yeah. Well, it wasn't that random. I have to say, because I actually was, this is early on before like Facebook was really big. It was definitely obviously before Instagram. It was the time of MySpace. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember. No. Yeah. And this guy reached out to me. I used to use, so also I know this is, this is, this could probably be a podcast on what are the weirdest jobs that Deepika Chopra have ever had. But I used to work for a punk label in college what? called Epitaph Records, which was amazing. It okay. was the best time of my life. But I used MySpace for work because yeah. it was a big music thing. Mm-hmm. And this guy reached out to me and he was from Orange County. He's from Irvine. And he went to UCLA. He was a couple years ahead of me. He was teaching English in Japan. Oh, and yeah. we just had like a ton of things in common. And it was like my first sort of experience of a pen pal. Yeah. And we used to 
email chat. each other oh, and chat about and music and stuff about like life about like I don't know he just we had everything in common mm-hmm. and he was just like a person he was this normal guy from Irvine mm-hmm. that just was living in Japan teaching English and just reached out to me from like you know you could list all the things you had in common mm-hmm. and um and so we you know we just started talking so you met you didn't meet in college. You just no. knew. He Whoa. just randomly reached out to me. Whoa, and it, would, okay. it was my only random reach out that I ever like accepted. Yeah. Because it was just for work. It wasn't like, you know, it there was, was like that. Platonic, but it wasn't. But it was, yeah. yeah. And we ended up just like literally speaking for a year all throughout my last year of college. And so I had, and he was teaching English in a town nearby to where I went in Japan. Mm-hmm. So I just had all this like, and it wasn't for him, but I had all this this like romantic idealism about Japan through him yeah. vicariously. Yeah. And so I was like, wow, that, and I've always been someone that loved traveling. Um, I've always been into language when I was seven or eight, I begged my mom to have someone teach me Spanish and I would go before school before first grade at like incredible. 6am to learn Spanish from a friend's mom. And I still speak fluent Spanish. I love it. So I always love languages. And I learned Italian when I was middle. It's just like, that was one thing that kind of came easy mm-hmm. to me was languages. And so I just, I needed to go to Japan. So I just you needed went to do it. and so stayed I, for two months. I stayed for two months. I did amaz- so many amazing things in the countryside. Mm-hmm. Um, I was there for Sakura for the cherry blossom oh, season. So um, in the spring. I also learned a lot of things about myself. Um, I wrote a lot. I love writing and sort of journaling. And um, At when- this time in your life, were you, um, like you're the optimism doctor, yeah. were you feeling like you... You were saying you had no inspiration. Yeah. So you were feeling down or do you think that you've always been, you were born with this sort of sense of being positive? So I think I come from two parents that are extremely positive and have an optimistic outlook. But I think like before really anything, we have to back up and I want to like, it's almost like this disclaimer. I have to define like what it means to be an optimist Mm -hmm. in in my word usage and in the the usage of like in a more social scientific way. So to be an optimist is not someone that's like, you know, running around, skipping through fields, like whistling, wearing rose colored glasses and just saying their life is perfect and amazing 24 seven, 365 days a year. Um, I have really come to believe that that is called bullshit Mm -hmm. or an Instagram story. Yeah. (laughs) Um, No matter like where you are, who you are, how um, much you've manifested in your life, like no one has that life. Mm -hmm. And it's because we're human and that's a good thing. And humans have to experience the full range of emotions. Mm -hmm. It's just how we go about in dealing with that full range of emotions. And so a true optimist is actually someone who sees the setbacks and the roadblocks. They're very aware of less than ideal situations. They happen to all of us, but they really see them as temporary and something that they actually have the power to overcome. Mm -hmm. And my parents are true optimists in that sense. And Mm so I feel like I was raised sort of in that way. My dad has a very, um, sort of quintessential American story. He came to this country with $8 mm-hmm. that he hid like in his underwear. Cause he was afraid someone was going to take it from him. Mm-hmm. And he used to collect like things in India that his friends would bring back from their trips in like Europe, like cut out like cars and various things like, and put them in like a book. And like now, I mean, that's now not that's all, but, like, yeah. he has a car collection yeah. mm-hmm. and he, 
you know, started from nothing and is very successful in every sort of regard, emotional, um, physical, like all of it. He, he's also a genius. He's very smart, Mm -hmm. but, um, and was always very, um, sure about education being, you know, but he's like, he's a very, he's the most generous man I know, but also the smartest man I know. And he, you do not want to cross him in business. Mm -hmm. Like he's, he's a true businessman, Mm -hmm. an entrepreneur, but yeah. So I always think I had that in me, but, and my mom is much more spiritual. So she was like positive in a more spiritual way. Mm -hmm. Very, um, you know, she had her own practice. Mm -hmm. She considers herself Hindu, never really placed it upon us, but I always saw she was very faithful and, um, sort of things always, she always had like the trust that things were going to work out, um, because of a higher power. So I kind of came from these and my dad was much more scientific. Mm -hmm. So I sort of like had these two things that I think I was brought up with, but I was always someone that had to ask why. So the same in high school, my best friend's mom, uh, introduced me to Abraham Hicks and the law of attraction. And I would listen to them on cassette tapes Mm -hmm. and I loved it, but I was also that kid that like, I couldn't understand or grasp like who Abraham was. So if anyone out there, like you guys, the channel, yeah, yeah. yeah. it just wasn't like, I was a science person Mm -hmm. even as a young kid, but I also had this like very romantical, you know, romanticizing. So I would just take the lessons from it. And then I would ask why to everyone I could, why do you think this works? So literally like fast forward, let's just skip over Japan. I had another job too in between. What I learned from Japan were two things. Number one, I am someone that needs physical touch. People in Japan do not touch or hug. (laughs) After like two weeks of being there, I was like, why am I feeling so low? Mm -hmm. Like I hadn't been hugged. And it was something I wrote a lot about when I was there, which was interesting. Like I just like needed a hug and I couldn't hug anyone. That's so And so weird. I learned that. I also learned in that. In our I, cult, I mean, we're like kissing each other yes, and hugging each other. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And from our cultures mm-hmm. too. That's and just I mean. being yeah. American mm-hmm. as well. Americans are much more friendly. Um, and in Japan, it's, it's more about respecting space. And there is still love there, but it's not, you don't just like go up and hug a random stranger. Mm-hmm. And I've always been very touchy. Mm-hmm. So that's an interesting thing I actually learned from Japan mm-hmm. <laughs> about myself yeah. too. Um, You're like, oh, I can't do that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, what, that was what the missing piece was, why I was feeling the way I was feeling. Um, but I also learned that like, I love people and I really wanted to work with people in a way that was more personal and not on like a bigger scale. So Mm -hmm. I wanted to just like, I wanted to work. I wanted to just talk to someone. Mm -hmm. I wanted to like see them. And I wanted to like, just, I don't know. I wanted to do something with that. Mm -hmm. So when I came back, um, I, I, you know, there was another job I had in public health, which was amazing. It was helping people, but on a broader scale. And, um, I was a manager in that company and I, uh, there was a, an organizational psychologist that came into one of our meetings and I had a great, you know, throughout this whole, my whole career, I've always had great bosses and great, um, supervisors when I got into grad school. So I had this amazing mentor who literally was like, you know what, I don't think this is for you, but what I do think is for you is you lit up when the organizational psychologist came and you should look into that. And so he packed me on my way and said, I don't think this is for you. And 
I knocked on every single door of UCLA neuropsychiatric. I mean, literally every door. And I just begged, can I volunteer for you for free before I apply to grad school? Mm -hmm. Because I don't know anything about psychology. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, I'm the kid that like watched Titanic and didn't go to school for two weeks because I was so sad so that they couldn't be together. Yeah. yeah. That's and I was like, I just you. thought that like a psychologist had to have that already. And I was so empathic to the other extreme. Mm -hmm. And so... I worked um, two people bit and said yes to me. One was research um, based. I did a research study. I helped UCLA do a research study on schizophrenia. And the other one was clinical and it was working with OCD patients. Mm -hmm. And I fell in love. I knew that's what I wanted to with do. both? Yeah, more the clinical. Mm -hmm. I fell in love. I applied to grad school. I did my prerequisites and I went for the long haul. I did my doctorate in clinical health psychology and throughout of it, um, I, I loved it. I credit everything to having that foundation, but I found a lot of holes. Mm -hmm. And when working with patients, I did a double fellowship, postdoc fellowship at UCLA and Cedars. And in working there, I just would tell my supervisors, I don't feel like I am equipped with what I'm being taught to really help these people the way I want to. Mm -hmm. Like I, sure. I, I get like being able to talk about the past and where sort of, you know, your behaviors come from and like your relationship with your mom or your dad or, you know, when you were a child, but like, then like, then what? It's not working right now. I see that. Yeah, it's like and then they're like, and then what? And I was obsessed with being people's then what? Mm -hmm. And again, I had great supervisors and they're like, well, what do you think? And I had a supervisor at Cedars that was starting to work in this idea of something called future directed therapy. And I was so in that I was already doing my dissertation on basically future-oriented thinking, optimism, and evidence-based manifestation. Wow. And at that time, that was weird. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so we really like gelled. And did you, you have any sort of classes that um, you had learned that in or was it just external stuff? Yeah. So that's such a good question because now there's amazing classes. Like Berkeley's got like like the good science center and mm -hmm. Yale's got like happiness classes. And at that time, no, wow. there was nothing really particular. There was positive psychology. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what I would cite and look at was from the work of Martin Seligman, who's the father of positive psychology. And also I pulled everything from cognitive behavioral uh, therapy. So CBT, I yeah. was much more drawn to that than I was to like Freudian psychoanalysis. Yeah. It just wasn't, it didn't, it wasn't, what I was drawn to. Mm -hmm. And so uh, my supervisors, especially at UCLA, they were amazing. They said, you know, we believe in what you're doing. I was very deep into studying the science behind visual imagery and visualization. And no one was really doing that in that world at the time. And they said, you can use our population here. We believe it, like go for it. And I was working with cancer patients at UCLA. So I got to lead every person that was having surgery in the Revlon, Revlon breast cancer center through like a visualization that I wrote specifically for them. And how often would you do this? Um, so I worked there every day and three days out of the week, I was helping train people in visual imagery. Um, some of the other, uh, the practicum students, which is you do a practicum before you do an internship, mm -hmm. before you do a fellowship. Um, and at the Revlon Center, I was there once a week. 
And then I had clients. Yeah. And then I had clients, um, my clients, I got to use those practices with with all of them. And you had clients just outside of. Oh, sorry. No, this was just, I had patients at UCLA. So when I was doing my fellowship, I I did a, I did a fellowship at Cedars and UCLA. So my patients were all um, at either one. And at Cedars, I was working with my supervisor at the time who was developing this new type of therapy. And so it was all very in line and teaching groups. And, you know, how long did you do that for? So basically in the program, you have five years of clinical experience, but my fellowship was for a year there, but I also did my internships at UCLA before I did everything basically at UCLA. So much. I'm a big Bruin fan. Yeah. (laughs) And so, um, yeah, I was just lucky that they believed and trusted and gave me the sort of like it's so reins. important to have them, you know, yes, be pushing you and supporting yeah. you through that because I think it's so easy to just be closed minded and totally. just go along with the way things have been. And you saw, yes. and obviously, you had a few people that were interested yeah. in and studying this or exploring it, so it was just like the perfect time, too. Yeah, and the psych, you know. I love everything about psychology. I really think that every human should take some sort of psychology class to be just it, a human. Yeah. But like, it's a very antiquated field. And about six years ago, I left the like, the traditional clinical Did you have world. a private practice or what were you doing? Yeah. So I was associated with Cedars and UCLA. And then after that, I went on my own and I left behind um, I found that because of the sort of antiquated nature of the field, it was hindering and holding me back a lot more. Like, for example, I couldn't see clients in other states mm. and we live in the Internet world. Yeah. And now I literally have clients in Sweden and in Perth and in Dubai and literally all over the world. And so I wouldn't have even been able to you just sky. So all of like my coaching, sessions no, now, but what do you call it? Oh, optimism yeah. sessions. So it's not like you're not saying I'm your psych. No. Yeah. So I completely left that behind. Yeah. I'm very like clear in my disclaimer. When I work with people, I am a psych, I am a professional psychologist. So I don't even call myself a clinical psychologist anymore. Although that is what my doctorate's in and all my trainings in. And, and I was, um, I am a professional psychologist, but I am not, acting as your psychologist, Mm -hmm. I'm an optimism doctor. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of got sick of explaining, like, I, you know, have a background in this. I work like this. It's not therapy. I call it self-worth work. We really actually focus 80% of the time, if not 90 on things that you want and only around 10 to 20% of times on things that are not working, which is the flip opposite of traditional therapy. And so I would explain all this. And then also like we look at your optimism factor and we really like define what it is and and where, where particularly you can work on to be more optimistic. And so instead of that whole thing, I just was like, what am I? I was like, Oh, I guess I'm a doctor of optimism or an optimism doctor. And so I trademarked it. I love that you trademarked it. And I was like, (laughs) brilliant. If you, if you're doing something that doesn't exist and you're literally doing it, then like you need to make it exist. Yeah. So now you are working with patients all over the world. Yeah. I'm working with clients. Yeah. We have to, it's like this. Sorry. No patients, just clients. Yeah, I know we have to be very particular with how. Would you say that people can learn to be optimistic then? Yes. So I love that question, actually, because, you know, I always grew up with this notion of like people are born either like optimistic or pessimistic. And we're kind of like 
also we were brought up in this like idea to think that people are one way or another Mm -hmm. and they're in these buckets, but actually like all of that's untrue. So there is a heritable, um, sort of basis to being more optimistic or pessimistic, but through twin studies, we found out that it's literally only about 25%. So the rest of the percent, which is the majority we have to really work with. And I also learned through all of this, that you are not a pessimist and you are not really an optimist. All of us have the capability of sort of acting with both in different scenarios. So for me, I feel like I'm pretty optimistic because I've worked hard at it in a lot of aspects of my life, but I am probably one of the more pessimistic people in a medical aspect for myself. I'm Mm -hmm. probably more neurotic than Woody Allen. Mm -hmm. And like, we've (laughs) taught, like, I don't, part of it is that really random weird shit happens to me. Um, like yeah. I told you, like I fell like off my bike and or then your voice. my voice, um, which being pregnant, being pregnant, I had hyperemesis gravidarum, mm-hmm. less than 2% get that. I have hemorrhage vocal cords from it. Like it, it all kind of feeds in, but if there's like, you know, someone saying like, this is really rare. I put my hand up and I'm like, that's probably me. Yeah. And so <laughs> that's sort of a chicken before the egg or egg before the chicken thing. And it's in my line of work, I look at it like it's because that's what I focus on. Mm -hmm. So I focus much more on these like really negative things that happen to me medically or my, the negative aspects of my health. But if I were to just take a snapshot of my whole life, you know, and look at it, like I'm much more healthy than I'm not. Mm -hmm. And so if I collect that evidence and I really focus on it and do the work, but man, is it hard? I'm not saying it's easy. It's hard work. I would probably be a more (laughs) optimistic person in my health aspect. And that's my sort of area of work. So everyone has their own area and I help them find what that is. Well, yeah. So so like training yourself to be more optimistic, Yeah, but then in those specific areas. Yes. And like, and even like just upping where you already are, because we've learned now, basically what we know is that we were actually programmed as humans from an evolutionary standpoint to be more pessimistic, you know, fight or flight. yeah, Yeah. And in the caveman days, if you could imagine the worst case scenario, you were probably the one that got away from the saber toothed tiger. Mm -hmm. And then you passed that on because you were able to reproduce because you were alive and so on. Ancestral trauma. So then it keeps going. It keeps going. And what we know now is we absolutely 100% have some pretty awful predators right now up against us in this type of climate we live in today, but they're not saber tooth tigers. And (laughs) our, our way to really thrive and live well in today's world is not by imagining the worst case scenario all the time. In Mm -hmm. fact, it's, it's about imagining good scenarios and better scenarios. And that we know with our brain, the more we can do that, the more we're able to actually problem solve. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's really a muscle I like to say, and not, for anyone to feel badly if they're not the most optimistic person because no one really is. It's a muscle that we have to work out, like going to the gym. Yeah. And, and how so can it just people takes do work. that? Other than so like finding ways to be grateful, right? Yeah. So gr- gratitude is something that is is a really special topic right now because A, it's really popular. And that's amazing because it's actually, because it's so popular, we have more research on it. Mm -hmm. And there's so much research that actually shows gratitude is so beneficial from like a health perspective and a mental perspective and a society perspective. But what I thought was so interesting in the research out there is that there's a lot of evidence to show that like the best kind of gratitude is Mm self-gratitude. And when I have people like, or when I have clients that are very used to writing gratitude journals or 
you know, everyone kind of, I don't know if it's just because we're in LA, but literally I said, I have clients all over there. People are pretty aware of what that is and they've Mm -hmm. tried it before. But the amazing piece is we never find people on their own gratitude journals. It's very external. And so one of the exercises I would really like push or encourage people to do is to start finding ways or list ways that you're thankful to yourself. And like, think about, think about things that you have already created, or, you know, we have to use the special, the like trigger manifestation word because we're actually in Santa Monica right now. Yeah. And every, you can't go, you can't really go walking across the street on the West side without at least hearing manifestation at least like 10 times, Yeah, (laughs) which is cool because like when I was doing my dissertation on this idea of evidence-based manifestation so many years ago, it was weird. And now it's almost like the opposite where it's like so oversaturated Mm -hmm. where you're just like, you see people like eye rolling it when they say it, but it's actually uh, whatever it is. It's real. It's cool. It works. (laughs) Yeah. And so, um, I think what's interesting is people are so willing to want things and they're very willing to sort of think about that or make a vision board and keep wanting. And they say like, I really want it. Mm -hmm. But like, once you've achieved something, we're not willing to take that same amount of time or, or even like more, cause we should to appreciate like that you have it and how hard you have personally worked for it. So like, I obviously have this like history of listening to Abraham Hicks and the law of attraction. So I'm very familiar with this idea of the universe, but I'm actually much more interested in like the you and universe. Mm -hmm. It takes work. I I, like, nothing's just going to fall into your lap. And that's like really uh, like whether that's a big bummer or not, or taking the like magic screen off of like how they make movies and seeing the behind the scenes. But like the work is not bad. The work is where the magic is. I love the work that. is the journey. The work is the real growth. Sure. Like, you know, if, if there was a genie and a magic bottle, you could rub and, you know, something could just appear in your lap. Maybe at first you would say, I choose that one. But I think I guarantee you, if you go through life and you actually do the work to get those things and you see how beautiful the process is and how it really actually shifts your mindset and changes you, not just with a Band-Aid, you would always choose that. Yeah. So like really appreciating and being grateful for your resilience, for your strength, for your you know, anything. That yeah. You've... And accepting yourself as a human, mm-hmm. which could mean that you experience negative emotions too, and you should, mm-hmm. but it's how you come through those. So another, like kind of some other like quick tips are spending time in nature. So just being outside for an average of two hours every week, research has shown has shifts, you know, mindset to more happiness, decreases stress, cortisol levels, um, and we know that like when you're in a happier mood or you're in a more, you're experiencing positive emotion, the executive functioning of your brain kicks in and you actually can start problem solving. So you can't, your brain can actually not problem solve or go forward with a goal unless A, you feel good. And like, I guess my big sort of um, coined thing or key that like, it seems like I get quoted a lot for because it's literally what I'm the most passionate about yeah. is you do not always get what you want, Mm -hmm. but you most always get what you expect. Mm -hmm. So the real work that I do with people is actually changing their expectations. So you can want something until the cows come home. You can say, I vision boarded it. I went to like a 
group vision board session and I held a crystal and I really put it out there into the universe. Like, I want this relationship. I want more money. I want, you know, to be happy. I want a child. I want all these things. And I want them one out of 10. I want them so bad. But unless you actually believe that they can happen, none of those things are probably happening. Mm -hmm. And it's because our brain is so powerful and so efficient. It's this amazing anticipatory organ and it only sets forth to put action into things that we believe could happen. Otherwise it's like, why am I going to waste this energy? I have to do all this other stuff, like help you survive. Yeah. So, so is that where the visual training comes in? Yeah. yeah. So visual imagery is one of my most favorite. I like to look at it like it's one of my most favorite tools to increase optimism and mm -hmm. to increase more positive future thinking. And the reason I love it so much is your brain, when you visualize something, these mirror neurons kind of start firing and it doesn't really know the difference between you visualizing it and you actually doing it. Which is so It's amazing. so cool. Yeah. And a lot of the research when I was in grad school and pulling from this for my dissertation, most all the research came from sports psychology, mm -hmm. from golf psychology particularly. And that's really where like a lot of the psych world was like, that's the meat of it. People were doing it in the sports world mm -hmm. because like, you know, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with the idea of, you know, famous athletes visualizing a shot, mm -hmm. you know, or a, a stroke in golf or tennis. And it's because, you know, if you physically were to practice everything at all times, all the time, your body goes into fatigue. Yeah. And obviously you have to have the physical part too. Like when you're watching, I always give this example. I don't even know if people watch Dancing with the Stars, but I actually don't watch Dancing with the Stars, <laughs> but I have seen it before. But the example is that like, if you're at home or you're in the audience watching Dancing with the Stars, your brain actually doesn't know the difference between you dancing and you watching someone dance. It's like starting to fire the same way. Yeah. So what I love about visual imagery is if you use, the trick with visual imagery is to use all your senses as much as you can with specific, mm -hmm. spe specific, specificity, Specific specificity, whatever. I don't, I don't know. know. <laughs> that word that is, specificity. supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, which you said better than specificity. I said that better than specificity. Um, so yeah, we know that using all of the senses is a much better way to trigger the brain. And um, what I love about visual imagery more than anything is that it really helps us work, especially with people that are very stuck. Mm -hmm. So if I was to ask someone that, you know, was doing pretty well and higher functioning and kind of maybe on like a one to 10 scale at like an, a seven, but they just want a boost and they want to sort of optimize in different areas of their life. They probably could visualize anything I asked them to visualize about a future goal. Mm -hmm. But like an example, I was working with a patient at Cedars when I was there in my fellowship and this woman really, really, really wanted to lose 50 pounds. She had been overweight for a very long time. She was also depressive and um, had anxiety. And there was no way that I could just ask her, you know, hey, can you visualize yourself 50 pounds lighter? Mm hmm. Like, let's go into a visualization. Like it was, she was so stuck that she couldn't access that. And yeah. like the thought of accessing it just made her laugh at herself mm -hmm. even more. So like I would use visualization as sort of a positive manipulative tool. Um, it's a little manipulative, but in a really positive way. So I would ask her some leading questions. Like who's the first person that you're going to tell when you lose 50 pounds? And she said her mom. Oh, so like, okay. Where are you when you're telling your mom this? I'm in my closet. What are you wearing? I'm wearing this red dress that I saw a couple of weeks ago at the store that I really wanted. Okay. What does it smell like in the room? 
what does it sound like? Oh, my mom's phone is ringing. Or, you know, I hear the tea on the stove from the other room in the kitchen. My dog is barking. So like in reality, she just visualized being 50 pounds lighter. That whole scenario, she was 50 pounds lighter wearing her dream dress. Yeah. Having her dream conversation. But like I had to get it away. Yeah. I had to intentionally get it out of her. Now we have something to work with. Her brain sees it as a little more possible because she's seen it. And now when we do visual imageries, I know where to go with her and customize that visual imagery for her. But she can do that on her own no. as well. Oh, no. Oh, she could. Well, yes, like, yes. At the um, beginning. Someone she, could. Oh, yes, yeah. of course. Yeah. Like, my biggest passion over the last couple year, the last couple years now, like what I'm most, most, most passionate about is giving people self-mastery tools. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason I stepped away from traditional psychotherapy was I didn't like the idea Redundant. of creating dependency. Yeah. And how long. I didn't really understand like what we were doing and what maybe it's a selfish thing. Like I like to know after I've done a session, like what have I really given to this person Mm -hmm. and can this person do this on their own? And so for me, like one of the things in my practice is I don't see people for a consecutive period of time for over six months. I think we should have made transformative changes within that time. And Mm -hmm. if not, maybe I didn't do my job well, or we weren't the right fit, or you wanted something more like traditional or you weren't really ready to do the work Mm because it takes work. And I'm not going to lie again. It's, it's hard work to retrain our brains. Um, and then the other part of it is that I love giving like very, very usable user-friendly tools. And so along with that, that's kind of where things are looking up was born. And, um, I just, the first sort of like product out is this deck of 52 cards yeah. and each card has a scientific or holistic based suggestion or prompt. So they're not affirmation cards. Um, they actually tell you like to do an actionable prompt or suggestion and carry it through, which actually shifts mindset and increases happiness. That's and so, so cool. And you do it every day or yeah, like so once a week? There or? are 52 of them. You can choose. However, I'm also really big in the idea of rituals. And I write a lot and speak a lot on sort of the science and holistic basis of ritualizing things. And I actually think they're one of the greatest tools to increasing optimism is to create positive rituals. And so I love my favorite part of creating things are looking up. I never really knew this would be my favorite part, but is really getting feedback from people on how they're using it as a ritual in their Mm -hmm. own life. And I've had people tell me that, um, you know, they use it with their wife Uh, they pick a card in the morning and then they carry it throughout their day. And at evening when they both come back from work and they're together, they like reflect on like how that went. That's so nice. One of my favorites is, is someone that reached out to me that says she does it with her four-year-old son Mm -hmm. and she sends me videos and it's so cute and so adorable. And um, so I love that. And then there's the 33 day challenge. So with it, um, I've sort of like hoped to inspire people to take the things they're looking up 33 day challenge, which is pulling a card every day for 33 days around the same time. And the reason for the number 33 is because it's actually a little bit uh, baffling, but there's this whole like concept out there that it takes 21 days to form a new habit. Mm -hmm. Like you've obviously heard that there's like books out there, like 21 days to this and whatever that is, or 21 days to reset. And it's actually not based on any real research. The number 21 was a misunderstanding. Whoa. Yeah. Like you could look it up, but it was this like plastic surgeon who wanted to be a psychologist (laughs) and went into psychology. And I think he was misquoted. Like it wasn't his fault, but it had come from something to do with like a patient recovery 
from something. Oh, okay. And there was no basis behind it. So, uh, so now it's they, actually 33 days. No, it's actually oh. on average research shows that it takes about 66 days to form a new lasting habit. But the first half we feel is the hardest. Mm -hmm. So it's 33 days is the challenge, but it's unfortunately out there. Like it's longer. It's 66 days on average, but it's different for everyone, but that's the average. So 21 days, not not based on anything. Actually anything. 33 is half of it. And it's just like a good number anyways. Yeah. Threes are very very spiritual and magical. So kind of like bridges the spiritual and the science. Yeah. Exactly. It's like perfect for you. Oh yeah. I need to do that. I'm going to do do that. Well, I brought you. Oh my gosh. Things are looking up. I'm so excited. I'm going to do it. I'm going to start it tomorrow. I'm going to, and then I'll I'll video it. Yeah. I can't wait for you to take the challenge. Thank you. you. They're beautiful too. And for anyone, I mean, for people watching, it's gorgeous, but for anyone listening, I mean, it's amazing. And also the holidays are coming up. So it's a really good, um, I'm super excited about that. And every, um, color used, uh, on the face of the cards, like everything is very intentional. Um, there's a reasoning behind all of it. It's like all abstract collage art on the covers. Um, the hues of the colors are very particular. So I also am a little bit of a, besides being like a brain nerd, I'm really, really into, like I said, visual imagery. And one of the things that I use in all my visual imagery sessions color. is the science and research behind the color. I love and that. And so I use color as a tool, um, in all my sessions, all my workshops. We need to do a whole podcast on that. Yeah, That's really cool. Yeah, definitely. And just, yeah, visual imagery in general. And a friend of mine, I love doing like goal setting work. Yes. And part of that is visual imagery as well. Absolutely. Um, but a friend of mine loves to lead them. So it's like perfect because yes. we always get together and we do that. And um, the other night she was like, I always do it. But the like this night in particular, she was like, oh, I've been doing this a lot. If you want to try it. And like figuring out what our values are. Yeah. And I've never done that before because I was like, okay, well, I have these values and pretty similar to my husband probably. And we just, you know, we never like actually sat down and wrote them down and prioritized them. Because I would say if you write down a list of like 15 values, obviously for my husband and I, they're definitely going to overlap. But if you prioritize your top Three to three five. To five. Yep, oh my that's gosh. That's the magic number. It really is. And so we did that and it was so crazy because they didn't match, but that doesn't matter because yeah. I, you know, value his, but it was interesting because recently I had, um, I mean, there's always like family drama, but yes, recently we just had some stuff happen in our family and I don't really, I'm the type of person that does not care what someone thinks about me at all. I, it's That's like, amazing. I have to be that way, especially with, you know, people comment on our podcast all the time. Like she's so fucking annoying. I hate the host and all this stuff. And I think it's funny and it, it's just been a thing. Like I speak differently. I went to school in Oregon. Yeah. I mean, I just have kind of like a way of being that's different. You're unique. Yeah. I'm unique and I'm myself and whatever. I don't care what someone thinks about me unless it, you're part of my family. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And so like family and respect were yes. really big for me. And, and you recent, probably really care. Yeah. I really family, care. Like and so it threw the, yeah. me for a loop because I had something happen with someone in my family and I was like, why is this like such a big deal to me. I don't understand why it's like breaking me down inside. And I feel disrespected by my family. And it was so huge for me to be able to, and it wasn't something that like, I still, it's not like I'm obsessing over it, but 
I was telling my it friend, really I was deeply like, impacted you. I was deeply impacted. But now ever since our exercise, like, you know, when I'm putting on my makeup or I'm just like have some alone time or whatever, it'll come up for me. And I just kind of recently like connected the dots and I was like, wow, that's so crazy. That's why. Yeah. But now what, you know? Yeah. So it's like that now what, but maybe visual imagery plays in with that and seeing yes. how it could change yeah. or values and knowing your values are it is a huge part of my work it's one of the best ways to increase happiness and I always teach that in my cultivating happiness workshops um it's the most incredible thing ever because if you it also I also teach workshops on the paradox of choice because we live in this like time right now where we have so many options yeah I mean literally between mm -hmm. like dating just buying like cereal at the cereal aisle kid stuff I know it's like crazy dissoning like information on how you're supposed to raise your kid like just so much right mm -hmm. so what it does is it puts us in paralysis like we actually just don't make decisions we're yeah. really and we don't we're no longer connected to our gut instinct mm -hmm. so with all of that like the way to connect to that and to make better choices and to increase happiness is to be connected to your values and having three to five values is really important it's like the magic number because you don't want too many and if you just always come back to your values in every decision you make, you will always be connected to a more happy life and you will never really make a wrong decision. Mm -hmm. And it really helps with decision making. Mm -hmm. And it helps explain like why you feel certain things at yeah. certain times. Um, I also am, I have a really like fun workshop that's been really popular in the last couple of years that I teach a lot, especially to like um, smaller sort of businesses, like an um like I just did, I just did it recently at Lunia. It was so fun. And I'm obsessed with this idea of Ikigai and oh, it's yeah. this Japanese practice. Yeah. And I always bring it into my value workshop and we all do an Ikigai. We do, we learn about Ikigai and we do the Ikigai. Um, we actually Which find totally out what our meaning for is. You, yeah. Being the science and the holistic yeah. and Japan and Japan all yeah. like came and together. I love, um, I love like blue zones mm -hmm. and oh my gosh you need to talk to jesse jesse does the madly forever podcast oh yeah i know jesse yeah she loves the oh, yeah. idea of blue zones and the, you know obviously it goes yes. hand in hand right like they're living longer but the connections and relationships yeah. that they have so when i was doing my dissertation like a lot of what i included was some of the work done from i mean i've been obsessed with them for so long and i've met him and um i incorporate a lot of that because it matches a lot of the research that, yeah, that, that I do because they're the happiest yeah I it's really cool that. and like you can really deduce them down to very specific things from a physical and emotional standpoint wow yeah it's so cool like what oh like like um walking people from blue zones we we had they were came from very like walkable cities or towns and we don't really do that anymore like mm -hmm. there's nothing I mean, you can go somewhere like Europe yeah. in some places and, and then it's foods that we eat. Then the thing that I love is from Okinawa, which is where Ikigai comes from. They, everyone know, knows what their Ikigai is, which means like true meaning for life. And they used to have these like pods, um, women were in a pod and men were in a pod and they were in them forever. And so you have these like these women that are like in their nineties that meet together regularly. And like, it's not as like, as a sort of organized as I'm talking, like yeah. as if it's group therapy, but it kind of is in mm -hmm. essence, they all keep each other like 
abreast to what their true meaning of life is and how mm -hmm. it's changed. And so if you always have people encouraging you to talk about your true meaning in life and to achieve it, like, yeah. of course, of course, you're right? going to live long and be happy yeah. and, and find a reason to yes. want to live that long. Yes. It's all about that. And the coolest thing when we do these exercises with people, it's kind of become my little thing to do these, these workshops. Um, like when you deduce it down to like one verb. So like someone's ikigai might be like to teach mm -hmm. or to inspire or like everything just goes into this like one, two word or like maybe it's a little like more It's like their verb. own mission statement. Exactly. It's your I personal soul like mission statement. So like then you carry that with you with every single thing you do, whether it's so small or something like a huge life decision or something tiny. And if you're always acting upon what your true calling is or your true meaning is, then you're really directing yourself in the right path. Yeah. And that's calming. And that, if you want to bring back to the science, that calms our parasympathetic system and our stress hormones are down. So and we can think more clearly. Yes. And our our proactive part of our brain starts firing and we're able to actually be successful at things and come up with problem solving to get over those hurdles and setbacks that we see. So then we're more optimistic. And the whole thing is just knowing what your core is and to know that it can change. Wow. So don't hold yourself to it. Yeah. Revisit it. I like to revisit it seasonally, although some people say to revisit it like once a year or, or like once every big sort of mm -hmm. like Transition. a decade or half. Yeah. yeah. But I just like revisiting it seasonally and I love doing it with my partner. Yeah. And then you guys as a part, as a partnership, you have your own. Yeah. And if together. he knows mine, yeah. it makes things and I know his, then I understand where he's coming from. Mm -hmm. And because I value him, it may be completely different than mine, mm -hmm. but I understand. And I, I want him to have that because mm -hmm. I know one of my values is I want the people I love to be happy. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, Thank really you beautiful. so much. Of it was course. so fun. It was so we'll definitely fun. have to have you back and yes. chat more. There's so much more to discuss. Yeah. But I can't wait to hear about how you, uh, I know this. how things are looking up yeah. for you. It's going to be so fun. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, of course. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a comment or review and share with your friends. I'm always reading our comments and love hearing from you. So keep in touch and I'll see you next time.